0: always have a, a really uh, good opportunity just the few minutes before giving a talk to look at the fifth hindrance of doubt. <laughs> it gets very prolific. <sighs> there's, um, there's a very, well, uh, I find a very helpful teaching that the Buddha gave, um, which I'd like to begin the talk with tonight. Where he said that um, the highest or the the, the most uh, the most helpful practice for overcoming that which obstructs, that which hinders, is the practice of patience. And then he went on to to say that to refrain from perpetrating or or, um, energizing, giving a lot of energy to unwholesome states of mind, heart, habits, to lift up and make much of that which is wholesome and to purify the heart. This is the teachings of all the Buddhas. Patient endurance is the highest practice for overcoming that which obstructs, to refrain from unwholesome states, to lift up that which is wholesome and to purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So if someone asked you what is the essence of Buddhism, that would be a very succinct way of responding. What was particularly interesting about this teaching that uh, that he gave was that he gave it spontaneously to a gathering of already apparently so the text says already enlightened beings that had gathered. To hear his teaching, spontaneously gathered on the full moon night of the month of Asala, which is the month of February, and so on the month of Maga, which is the month of February. Asala is the month of July, which is a different, a different remembrance. Actually, that's the Four Noble Truths, right? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but to this day, the Maga Puja, the the remembrance of this teaching, is still continued in in uh, Theravada countries, which you know, which to commemorate the significance of this teaching, and it's called the Sangha Day. It's the day when one commemorates the essence of of Sangha. You know, those that practice. Uh, the the restraining of the unwholesome, not perpetuating unwholesome tendencies of heart and mind and action for our own welfare and for the welfare of others, those that sustain and hold to the good, to the wholesome, and who practice the purification of heart, with this attitude of of what's sometimes called in zen, the the long-enduring mind that can go or stay the course of what the practice really requires. When you think that uh, the Buddha gave this teaching to a group of already awakened beings, arahats, you think if spontaneously they didn't need an email, they just knew they should gather on the full moon night of, of February, for the Magga Puja, uh, you would think that he would give some really profound, esoteric, subtle, subtle transmission teaching. And yet, the first utterance was this word: patience, kanti kanti paramita. Patience is the, and the word he used again: highest tapas, which means to to purify, to overcome that which obstructs. So in this retreat for for many of us and speaking in the groups and hearing what's happening for people often a lot of the 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 work is quite subtle in terms of adjusting one's expectations and attitude in relationship to the practice the long enduring mind or the patient mind isn't a sort of a, an attitude that's sort of waiting for things to change sometime magnificently in some sort of great shift where we don't have to be challenged or face difficulty. But it's more this willingness to just be with how it is in this moment, to be and to meet our experience here and now, how it is, whatever emerges for us, whatever comes to us in our life. Our willingness to to work with that, to allow it to be, to have, as uh, Ajahn Sumedho, a monastic teacher would say, to have all the time in the world to be with this moment. As a practice, I find that quite helpful. As it's to 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 practice with a sense of it's not shifting quickly enough for us is a recipe for, for a lot of uh, frustration a lot of difficulty it's already compounds what's already existing as that which might be difficult to be with so in the the seed of this this quality of patience has a has a lot of compassion in it there's a willingness to be with the struggle or the challenge or the difficulty is, is cultivating, it helps cultivate this quality of, of kindness, of compassion, openness, softness, listening more deeply into that which we haven't uh, resolved or healed, or which is still the sharpening sword, as Ajahn Chah would say, for our wisdom and for our compassion, that which obstructs is actually has uh, opportunity in it. It's not just a drag, it's not just something gone wrong. So, the adjustment of attitude is really important and, in many ways, beyond the teaching of technique or method. Uh, Ajahn Chah's teaching was very much about right view, how to approach. And be with our experience in a way that's translatable and transportable from the retreat format from the formal sitting into the to everyday life into whatever situation we find ourselves in and with whatever is happening if the if the view if the attitude if the approach is based in wisdom, then everything is uh, We can practice with everything, every situation, whatever it happens to be, every mind state, every relationship, every challenge. It can all be the ground for our practice. If our practice is dependent upon a particular mind state or feeling a particular way or having a particular circumstance or particular people that we prefer or environment that we would wish for, it's not to say that those aren't important things to have in place, but we can't always control that. And if we overly depend on making the external situation or the inner mind state something that we uh, feel comfortable with, that we feel is conducive, then that's wonderful. But when it shifts and we can't maintain control, and we're faced with that which is more Challenging, then that's when it's important to have right view, to know this is how it is. And this is the place where we meet how it is with with the right uh, quality of mindfulness, quality of attention, quality of inquiry, quality of patience, compassion. Not as Kisaro was saying in his talk, or Ajahn Menindo. Experience when Ajahn Charles gave him the teaching of not how it should be, but how it is. If it shouldn't be like this, it wouldn't be like this. <laughs> it's quite profound. It's another situation of Ajahn Chah when he first came to London. He'd never been to the West before. He'd been practicing in monasteries in the forests of Thailand. He spent many years as a as a mendicant monk, just wandering. Uh, the forests of Laos and Burma, Cambodia, Thailand, before uh, the boundaries of, before communism, before it was so boundary, before the forest disappeared, and pretty much disappeared now, in an era when it was still possible to really live like that. And he lived like that for 20 years or so. Um, and yet he said that his most, you know, obviously that was a very powerful practice to live as an arms mendicant, simply a renunciant. But he said that actually his most wisdom, his, his wisdom really sharpened when he came to live more settled and lived in community. And within a relationship, where the, the edges start to, that sharpening sword, that sharpening stone where we feel friction yeah. and uh, when he came to London he, he came to visit um, for the first time and a couple of things happened he went out on arms round I mean he'd been used to when he, as a, he was like a national treasure by the time he got to visit the, the west he was quite elderly and he'd become like this you know incredibly revered Monk, Ajahn, uh, saint almost people, the Thais, seem very much as a, as a saint. So he comes to London and he goes Hampstead on arms round and these yobbos come up to him and sort of start trying to do Kung Fu. It's like kicking towards him. They didn't actually kick him, thank goodness, but they were sort of like, you know, very aggressive and in, in Thailand, the worst thing, the worst insult you can do is to is to point your feet. You know, if I was doing that, I would be insulting you. Or point your feet to a shrine, or or a monk, or a nun, or a, you know, it's like the most, the worst kind of insult. So Ajahn Chah observes all this, and he gets back to the Vihara in Hampstead. It's an old Victorian house on Hampstead Heath, and. He's sitting there and all the monks are really sort of like upset about it and worried. And he just, he just sort of goes, well, I see you've got very good teachers here. this <laughs> is <laughs> uh, he it's a teaching, it's a teaching. <laughs> he wasn't upset. He wasn't worried about it. And then a little later in that visit, he, uh, he was going to give a talk. And it was a summer's evening and hot and people had gathered and gathered to hear the great Ajahn and there was a lot of excitement and anticipation and was it was such a lot of people crowded into the room and because it was so hot the windows were opened and right across from the Vihara, the, the, the dwelling where they were the house where they were was a pub and that night they had a rock band Going full blast, and of course through the open windows, it was really hard for anyone to hear anything, or for Ajahn Chah to say very much. And people got very, very agitated about it. And Ajahn Chah just sit there, just sitting there, smiling. Just sat there, sat there. People were getting quite restless and agitated, and wondering what to do. And and after a while, he just looked at everyone and just said. Sort of are you going out, are you uh, being disturbed by that noise or are you going out to disturb the noise? You, you know, do you, is that really, Is the? where's the real problem? Is the problem the noise or what you're doing with it? And, it, you know, this, this, the, you know, that was, well, he's a master, he could use the situation to teach, but this pointing to right view rather than the control of the situation, the environment, which is not always possible to control. When, when right view is established, uh, the ability to meet life as it is, to meet the state, again, you know that preparation, meeting in this hothouse of the meditation retreat, meeting, learning to meet how it is, And for many of us, it's not how we want it to be. It hasn't been how we exactly wanted it to be. Or it has been for a while, some really very good experiences. And then sometimes just seeing how quickly that can shift. And an emotion can come or a state of mind can come up that we weren't really planning to have to visit again or have to experience again. Some old wound or storyline... Yeah, there we go. In the in the this purification of the heart in the, the jita, which means heart, mind, the jita in its natural state. Um, as we've been exploring, as we've been leaning into, listening into quality of knowing awareness radiancy luminosity immovability reflective but the jita is, is is programmed or covered or obstructed we don't always have access to the primordial nature of mind or heart, the depth, awareness, presence, rootedness. Uh, what we experience is the the patternings or the habits or the tendencies, or the Pali word is sankara. Sankara, that which has been, literally means san, means to be put or made, kara, uh, to to be put or made together some are compounded compounded from these kundas that we've been reflecting on memories and feelings and perceptions and thought patterns and some of these when we come to practice and we bring awareness we start to experience and open to some very persistent tendencies, patternings sankharas that have a lot of sometimes a lot of uh, sticking power. They were put together maybe in, in um, you know in very early conditioning before we were even cognizant of their roots, very primary patternings, programmings, tendency towards fear or anxiety, tendency towards uh, aversion or resistance tendency towards longing, looking, seeking we might not even be cognizant of the depth of some of the patterning of the jita or the heart might not be conscious to us but we can feel the effects in worry or anxiety a sense of resistance a Sense of being a bit dislocated, and so when these when these come up, or when there's a space, and we start to feel uh, either the the, the the feeling tone of it, or the emotion, or the or the mental um, cognitive in a voice that's judging, criticising. And it's, it's sometimes it's very, very hard to to actually bear with, to be with, and not just react or not be shaped by those patternings or those sankharas, those tendencies. Some of them are very, sometimes they don't have a lot of energy in them. They're very light. So we can be practicing and some kind of worry comes up or some speculation about the future. And then mindfulness, bringing mindfulness, it can be a moment of knowing it's just like this. It's just this, in this moment, it's this feeling, it's this thought, it's this speculation and it dissolves quite quickly. You can see it for a moment bit like a, a drop of water hitting a hot plate. <laughs> the mindfulness is strong and if something comes up, a worry, a wobble, and the mindfulness, the awareness is so strong, it just meets that and it, and it dissolves, it reveals its empty nature, dissolves back into the innate brilliance. No, no particular problem. And what's been illuminated is some insight, perhaps, into the nature of thought. So some patterning, some sankharas. It's like that. It's quite light. It's other, other patternings, other tendencies have much more energy in them. Have much more power in them. And we've invested perhaps often very unconsciously through a lifetime, maybe even longer, into that dynamic, deep patterns of fear, of anxiety, tendency to be uh, disassociated, not really here, disembodied, floating in mental realms, not really rooted, connected with a real... Ambivalence; yeah, these kind of difficult states. I mean, some really, f- sometimes really feeling us stuck with a sense of resistance, and one doesn't even quite know what it's about. Sometimes It doesn't know, but it it appears and it comes. And in the meditation, if we don't have right view, when when we meet these. Ancient, quite familiar places, then the tendency is to to either try and push away from that or to identify and take it very personally, to start to struggle with it, to become it. If we don't have mindfulness, we basically have two options. We either repress it or we become it. We become unconscious, we move away, or we just... Get shaped by that sankara, by that patterning, and we find ourselves struggling, <clears throat> judging ourselves, creating a self, and then judging it. So this is why sometimes mindfulness is called the flood stopper. It stops. It begins to reverse that tendency to to flow with the patterning, these shapes of self that emerge, these tendencies, especially when they're deeply rooted. Bringing bringing these patterns, and for for a lot of us just talking today and hearing what people are working with, a lot of the work is just knowing how to meet those places where there's... uh, Uh, These repeating storylines, places of difficult feeling, and to understand that in the meeting of them, it's not you know it's not wasted. There's not this patient, this being with as it is, but mixing with the meeting. Of with, with how it is, this quality of not only mindfulness but inquiry, investigation. The word often used associated with mindfulness is uh, mindfulness with clear comprehension. And the, the Pali for this is a very interesting phrase which gives us a sense of, of the activity of mindfulness. It's not just holding a cold, observing, clinical attention to sensation, the phrase yoniso manisakara which is often coupled with the practice of mindfulness literally means to bring the mind into the womb of awareness, it means something like that, yoniso, yoni is connected with the word womb, womb or matrix, the womb of awareness, so awareness or mindfulness has this sense of, of holding. Mani sakara, Karas is to to make mani the mind, to bring the mind into the womb of contemplation, to bring the sankara, to bring the feeling, to bring the tendency. This ancient, these ancient patterns that that spin us out, that uh, alienate us from the original heart, that that split us away from our well-being, that generate suffering when they're not illuminated by insight. To bring those to meet with this patience that the Buddha recommended to his disciples, this enduring heart that's willing to be with as it is again and again and again, to bring those into the womb of contemplation. And trusting that in that process the the awareness, the activity of mindfulness, of awareness, of presence begins to, through the clarity of seeing it, just as it is, begins to release the heart from its identification with the pattern, with the fear, with the anxiety, with the stuckness, with the aversion, with the restlessness, with the confusion, with the amorphous, ambivalent feeding tone. We don't even quite know what it is, but it's very familiar and it's very ancient. With the doubt. In my own life, this has been a really important principle and I've, I've found it very powerful. had a lot of, one. we talked about the second noble truth, the nature of um, wanting and not wanting the mind, is that which generates struggle. It's called the two forms of desire, desire and aversion, uh, sensory desire, desire to become. And then this this aversion, this aversive tendency is very profound. I found for myself, not so much hating Things or people, not in a strong way, but just this profound sense of not really wanting to be here somehow. It's just mixed with anxiety, fear, ambivalence, uh, self judgment. Like if one's here, if one actually comes into the fullness of one's incarnation. The fullness of one's breath, the fullness of one's being, the fullness of one's passion, one's energy, one's creativity—I would notice there would be this something that would just block, that would judge, that would shut down, that would that would uh, undermine, that would sabotage your voices, feeling tones, to the point that I one day I was I was. Um, which is probably why i'm in this role a lot of uh, having to to facilitate groups and speak and because in a way it 's been a way of working with that tendency where there 's a lot a lot in me that would want to shut me down and one day I was in facilitating a group and I walked away. There was, was a session. I walked away, and this voice came up. It was so powerful. It was so condemning. And just basically said, "You're just you know you're just so bad, so useless. You should just go and kill yourself." It was re- <laughs> it was really shocking. It was really shocking to 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 actually have an. I think why why I was able to see is actually over the years I'd accumulated enough presence of mind that it that it's almost like that the depth of the aversion which was directed a lot towards myself was loosened enough that it bubbled up this profound tendency that I was able to really see it, and it with this enormous pain within within the voice you know enormously painful but i was also able to not be it and not repress it not you know it wasn't defended it wasn't shut out it was uh, able to appear, and I was able to with a mindfulness to feel it, you know, not to think about it, not to to fix it, not to you know try and work it out, but to actually be willing to feel the original pain the the original wounding of the heart. You know, where that came from and why, who knows? You know, maybe generational, maybe ancestral, maybe genetic, maybe karmic. You know, that's another kind of journey to figure out where this stuff comes from, but the journey of meditation is can, in that moment, to heal this purification of the heart, to heal the original wounding of the heart. That's, that's often happened It's such a deep place and before we're even very conscious And yet, the affect from those woundings shape and uh, this sankhara, this pattern in the habits of our life, happens of, you know, patterns of keep moving away from the moment because, at some level, it's actually profoundly painful to be here, to be embodied, to be present in our fullness. And until, in that way, until we can really resolve that, then life becomes this constant. Sense of stress, some level or another, and then the compensation for that by seeking that which alleviates the stress. So this yoni samani sakara, this the power of being able to hold the compassionate quality of awareness, the the womb of awareness, to bring our experience with this right view, meeting how it is, and allowing it to be marinated almost within the awareness to feel with to feel with how it is to feel but without becoming the pain, without denying the pain but just moments of feeling with how it is releases and transforms heals, heals the jita, heals the heart heals the patternings One of the things Ajahn Chah said, that without desire, without aversion, there's no practice. It's actually these, these challenges that come, that actually are the cause. They are the uh, instrumental in the, in the capacity for us to cultivate wisdom and compassion. There's a wonderful quote which I like very much from an ancient practitioner who's a teacher of Nagarjuna, so back in the mists of time in ancient India. Uh, Sahara is his name, The great practitioner, said, While suffering increases, bliss increases. The greater the mental afflictions, the mightier the primordial wisdom and compassion. The larger the pile of wood, the greater the blaze. So we could we could feel, you know, that that which obstructs us is a real drag. <laughs> it's really, and we just want to get it out the way quickly. But with this this right view that Ajahn Chah would always encourage, this willingness and this great patient long enduring heart that the Buddha encouraged to even his enlightened disciples you know, there's, we can actually shift the perspective and realize actually we have a lot of manure for our garden <laughs> the garden of the heart you know, it's just really mostly a question of being patient with the practice with the fruition of the practice It's not wasted. What you're doing is not wasted. The moments of mindfulness have it will it will come it will bring fruits into your life, mysterious and magical fruits, wonderful fruits. It's been my experience. it said in the Kuan Yin Dharmas the way and the response are intertwined inconceivably practice the way and there's a response that emerges in our life so with suffering suffering is the sharpening stone for wisdom but is also that which is the root of compassion it's that which you know, if we can Practice with skill and compassion can arise you know, suffering. If we can feel with suffering rather than react, uh, deny, blame, project it on ourselves, and be crushed by it, if we can meet the challenge of it, then it becomes the root for great compassion. So that the. the the practice of compassion can, can can emerge organically, but you know, but also encouraged us to practice. It is a practice. It's a discipline. It's not it's, compassion can be very difficult when we actually feel. You know, we don't feel that. We feel quite judgmental, quite alienated, quite disconnected, angry. The, the root of compassion is our capacity to really feel with, and first of all, to feel with this being, ourselves. So this practice we've been doing this week, you know, we're learning not only to free the heart, to, to see into the nature of the five khandhas, but also to bear with, to feel with life, to bear the reality of life. You know, to bear our experience, not, for, not blindly just to be masochistic, but for the sake of softening the heart, opening the heart. the practice of kindness metta is you know, we can generate loving thoughts but in the in the core again of this practice is you know, can we can we be with things as they are in a kindly way can we be with this body in a more kindly way can we be with the difficult feelings in a kindly way and when we feel averse, which is natural to feel aversion rather than denying aversion, often sometimes aversion is really important energy to explore. You know, it's often when there's anger or aversion, there's often something in it that's important for us, a wisdom in it to understand, to really discern, you know, to know what's what's you know what what's happening here what's what's in the heart of this this feeling of of resistance or aversion exploring into it to feel into i know that often when i feel irritable or averse or negative often it's to do with how i i don't hold boundaries well enough in in terms of honoring my own needs or being kind to myself, knowing how to, to look after myself properly and then overriding the natural mechanisms of well-being, clarity, knowing how to say no clearly. And you just feel, feel averse. Sometimes just tracking into what, what's happening here, what's happening here. So to be able to work with an energy like aversion, irritation, irritation, to contemplate it, but without the practice of working with aversion, irritation, the practice of kindness, is also not to dwell in it, not to make much of it. So it's a real fine edge to contemplate it, to be able to decant. What is, in every energy, there would be something something important to understand, something that it's telling us. You know, if, we, if we just get swept away by that energy, then we don't really understand it. We just become it, and we react. We act out. If we just repress it because it's it's not nice to be angry, which is our social conditioning, socialized conditioning, then we lose an opportunity. So the mindfulness just to stay steady. And can you know if that arises, can we be kind to that? Can we actually listen into it? Can we hear its nature? In some situations in life it's quite hard to be kind, but can we not dwell in aversion and hatred for someone or a situation? And in that kind of practice it actually makes one's response more effective. Whatever needs to happen... So I'd like to finish tonight the reflections with a a quote from the Mahayana teaching about this nature of that which is you know, difficult, that which challenges, that which is suffering, how it becomes is the root, becomes the root and the opportunity for our Capacity to grow through the doorway, through the activity of mindfulness, to grow into the heart, to grow and express its true nature. Great wisdom, great compassion, great kindness. All Buddhas take the mind of great compassion as their substance. Because of living beings, they develop great compassion From great compassion, the enlightened heart is born. It is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks and sand of barren wilderness. When the roots get water, the branches, leaves, flowers and fruits will all flourish. The regal Bodhi tree is growing in the wilderness of birth and death. All living beings are its roots. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are its flowers and fruits. By benefiting living beings with the water of great compassion, one realizes the flowers and the fruits of the Buddha's wisdom. so may the great tree of compassion and wisdom flourish as a meditator we're like we're like a tree seems like we're not doing very much we're just sitting around breathing but this purification if we if as we know when we when we chop all the trees down we're in trouble on the planet Trees are the lungs, they take in the poisons and they give out oxygen. As a meditator, the one that's mindful, rooted in mindfulness, rooted in awareness, rooted in presence with right view, this great, greatly patient, compassionate heart, One's able to receive and feel the wounds, the pains, the sufferings, not only our own but of the world. And as if we breathe them in, touching with this mindfulness, with this compassion, with this awareness, and in their own way, through the process of the activity of mindfulness, the purification happens. It allows the world to breathe a bit easier as we release these painful Forms and shapes that are no longer needed to be kept imprisoned in the corners of our heart and trust more and more in our capacity to in our capacity for presence we trust that trust that and allow that to to work to purify to heal to resolve to illuminate So thank you for your presence this evening. So, in our dedication of blessings, at the end of the day, particularly remembering any loved ones that our family, friends, or those that we might know that are struggling, uh, just extending wave of well-wishing, sharing the blessings and to to all beings, whatever situation they're in. May mysteriously the effects of our practice, like the trees that oxygenate help oxygenate our our planets, purifying the air, may mysteriously this practice help alleviate suffering for the whole. may all beings may their hearts be at ease, may they be free from harm, and may they realize the peace of their own nature.